Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Marcel Tenberg, and I'm the Merrill Lynch Market Executive here in San Francisco uh, and member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors for about two weeks now and the chair, <laughs> and the chair of today's program. You can find us on the Internet at the Commonwealth club.org, as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Today we are pleased to present the Walter Hoadley Annual Economic Forecast, named in honor of the club's late past president and longtime board member, Dr. Walter Hoadley. Dr. Hoadley also served most notably as chief economist and vice president of Bank of America. Today's program is sponsored by the Walter E. Hoadley Memorial Fund and Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Our program today will feature two distinguished speakers with distinct viewpoints. Keith Hennessy, lecturer in economics at the Stanford University School of Business, who served as senior White House economic advisor to President George W. Bush. And Dr. Christina Romer, professor of economics at the University of California at Berkeley, who served as chair of the Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama. Let me say a bit more about each. Keith Hennessy has spent more than 14 years in economic policy roles advising senior elected officials. As deputy director and then director of the White House National Economic Council, he coordinated economic policy design and implementation for President Bush. Mr. Hennessy previously served as aide to Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott. He holds a master's degree in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School, and in his current role at Stanford, he teaches courses in American economic policy and how it gets made. Christina Romer joined the Berkeley faculty in 1988 and was promoted to full professor in 1993. She's co-director of the Program of Monetary Economics at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She has previously served as vice president to the American Economic Association, and Dr. Romer previously taught at Princeton University and holds a PhD from MIT. Today, Dr. Romer and Mr. Hennessy will be in conversation with Evelyn Dilsaver, chair of the Commonwealth Club Board of Directors, former executive vice president of Charles Schwab, and former president and CEO of Charles Schwab Investment. Please welcome Keith Hennessy, Dr. Christina Romer, and Evelyn Dilsaver. Thank you. Thank you, Marcel, and I'm glad you joined the board, even if it's only been two weeks, but we're going to get a lot out of you. Um, you will have um, cards on your chairs that you can ask questions, and we will have uh, runners coming up and down who will grab those questions and bring them to me so that I can ask them on your behalf of our guests here. And this is a, uh, an open conversation. We're talking about national. We had a previous panel that uh, focused not only on national but also local issues for California. But because this is being broadcast uh, across the U.S., we'd love to have a more national and global focus. So that will be most of our questions. So it's been a time of new highs for the stock market, topping 29000 for the first time. And employ unemployment is at 3.5%, the best in 50 years. It's also a time of impeachment um, and the Senate trial of the president, continued gridlock in our government, and, of course, the upcoming presidential election. 
along with uncertainty about trade agreements with China, looming threats in Iran, North Korea, and Russia, among others. We had um, Secretary of State Pompeo in last week or the week before to the club, talked a lot about China, so I'd love for you to also address the China issue that we have. So against this backdrop, I'd love to hear from both of you, both internationally and domestically, how do you see the economy? And are you pessimistic or optimistic about the next year? All right, well, I'll, I'll go ahead go and start. Um, I think on the, the sort of the, the headline about the, the U.S. economy is certainly very good. So the unemployment rate, as you pointed out, is uh, at uh, about a 50-year low. Inflation is well-contained. So in that sense, we're certainly uh, doing well. Uh, it's hard, though, of course, Shocks may come. Uh, right now, it doesn't look like there's any immediate sort of threat to that uh, sort of stable, good economic conditions. I am, so in that sense, I, I'm optimistic about the short run. I don't see any big troubles brewing, uh, obviously, in, in the, the near term. I am concerned about the long-run health of the American economy, both um, we could just go through the long list. There's, we've had very slow productivity growth, uh, low business investment. That doesn't bode well for what's going to be happening over the future. We know we're having uh, high and rising inequality, uh, and that is not just a, a social problem and a democratic problem, but it is an economic problem in the sense of uh, the lack of opportunity for a large part of our population uh, is going to be bad for our long-term growth as a society. We're not uh, using the potential of all of uh, our people. I'm exceedingly worried about uh, climate change and, and the fact that we're not only not dealing with it, if anything, we're going backwards in, in some of our policies. And I think that is a, a really a deep threat uh, to the to the U.S. economy over the longer term. And I guess if I kept my list going, I'm very worried about the deficit. So with there, the, the big picture is I, I find myself in this very uncomfortable position of being relatively optimistic about the near term but relatively pessimistic about longer uh, term issues. And, and that's just so not what, as Americans, we are used to or we should uh, be feeling. Just briefly on the world economy, I think the it's kind of it's almost the same story, the, or it's not as nice a story. I'd say a, a lot of the world, especially other advanced economies, are limping along much more than than we are. They're they're stable, but they're certainly not strong, and so that is uh, a threat to them. It's a threat to the world economy. I think the bigger issue and the one I'm sure we'll talk about are sort of the geopolitical risks are no doubt have, have gone up. And so while things look fairly stable now, that can change pretty quickly if we've got major trouble in the Middle East, if the trade war erupts again, you know, that all of that is certainly a threat, not just to us, but to the world. Great. Thank you. Dr. Good. Um, uh, yeah. Optimistic uh, about where we are now, and I think I'd say optimistic and hopeful about where, where we can go in the future. Um, if you look at sort of the big picture macro in indicators of where things are right now, 
um, you're pretty close to where you'd want to be in an ideal situation, right? Uh, uh, unemployment rate is very low. Labor force participation is, is coming back up. So you combine those two, you get the employment to population ratio, which is at, I think, 61%. It is, it is climbing. It is getting into, we're in good numbers now. We're getting into great numbers. Wages are rising. Wages are rising for people at the bottom. Um, inflation uh, seems to be right about where the target is. So all of your high-level macro indicators um, are somewhere between good and great and ideal, um, which means that if you're just taking a snapshot of where things are now, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to when we were in policy roles. These are the kinds of numbers you'd love to have when you're in a policymaking role, and you love to go tell the boss, hey, look at these numbers. Um, uh, looking forward, uh, yes, there are risks. Yes, there are, there's uncertainty, but there are always risks and there is always uncertainty. Um, let's not rely too heavily on anyone's macro forecast, especially if they tell you they're certain that things have fundamentally changed and they know that things are going to shift in the future. I'm just pessimistic about the ability of forecasters, any forecasters, to see into the future. Their crystal balls aren't really that good. And the reality is most macro forecasters take a ruler and a pencil and they draw a straight line and say, but there might be shocks. Um, so there might be shocks. Um, uh, the shocks that would concern me are going to be policy shocks, um, domestic and global, um, particularly concerned with, with domestic uh, policy shocks. Hopefully, we've all adjusted our expectations to expect a higher level of policy volatility or at least political volatility. Yep. The reality is, is that, except in a few areas, policy hasn't been moving very drastically, mm -hmm. um, at least not from a macro or micro sense. You know, we've had a few changes. We've had changes on the China trade front. Um, but Frankly, in a lot of areas, um, microeconomic policy and several important macroeconomic policies are kind of stuck, um, which I find frustrating. Um, uh, looking, I agree, my focus would be medium to long term. Mm -hmm. um, I look on these as not so much as problems, but as opportunities for us to make things even better. Um, we can raise future wages, raise future wages and raise future productivity growth if the government um, doesn't borrow as much. Um, if we address the long-term, actually, they're now medium-term uh, spending trends in our old age and old age entitlement programs. Um, if we invest more in physical and human capital in the public and private sector, um, and if we make our economy more productive um, by lowering some of these barriers to allow uh, businesses and in individuals to adjust, um, the key word is flexibility. Yep. Um, we need a more flexible economy. We need to stop putting barriers in that are keeping people from from adapting. Um, and then in the long run, um, you have to look at, uh, you know, the world is changing. The structure of the world is changing with a rising superpower. Um, I think it is easy to get sucked into U.S. versus China or um, the different dimensions of that relationship and um, from my standpoint, the best thing we can do in terms of that superpower relationship and whatever tensions or, or um, conflicts we have there is to get our own house in order because um, there's a lot of room for improvement with our domestic policy, which can strengthen us um, as we're interacting with the rest of the world. Thank you. And actually, we'll cover a lot of the things that all of you raised around slowing productivity, opportunity, the deficit in trade. So uh, let me ask you a provocative question. Um, if you were president today... What fiscal policies would you want to put in place? Okay. Uh, 
there, there are two, and I'm, 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 I'm debating where to go with this. So I, I think I'm going to be in, in pretty strong agreement with Keith about uh, that um, running a trillion-dollar deficit when we're at close to full employment is just not good policy. So we ought to be thinking about how we deal with that, and especially, I think, raising the issue of the long-term the fact that, that our long-term fiscal outlook is even worse uh, than where we are right now, um, we need to be dealing with that. Where I think I want to go, though, if you give me one fiscal policy, I'm going to put on a carbon tax. I think mm. that, as I mentioned, I think the, the evidence is we've learned something in the last few years. I think climate change is happening faster. We're seeing the eco economic and human effects uh, sooner. And I think the, 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 probably the, the single best policy we could do to deal with it would be putting a tax on what's causing a problem, which is uh, carbon emissions. And uh, I would rebate all of the revenues so that it doesn't become a political issue about um, are you just raising taxes on everyone? I would give people the right incentives to uh, use the kinds of energy and develop the kinds of energy that uh, save our planet. So if you, if you give me one policy, that's the one I'd choose. Interestingly, it is uh, the, among economists, it would probably be the least controversial policy. I know it's incredibly controversial in a public uh, sense, but it, there's just a, a really interesting coalition of people who had my job or Keith's job in Democratic, Republican administrations, uh, widespread support for, for that as a, as a number one fiscal policy um, that's wow. going to deal with, a, with another problem. That's great. That's great. All right. I know, I know they all like it. Um, Mr. Hennessy. Uh, before I answer, uh, just something that I, I, I needed to remember to do. I need to um, compliment uh, Christy and congratulate her um, on Cal finally winning uh, the big game. So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you were the better team last year, and we look we look forward to retaking the X this fall. <laughs> All right, I'll, um, I'll take the compliment. Uh, so I was just talking about uh, carbon tax. I've been talking about it a lot um, over the past couple weeks in class, and and the related gas tax. Um, uh, and I was explaining to my students that um, the exact reasons why economists like gasoline taxes, they are broad-based, they are equitable, they are efficient, and they are transparent, are exactly the reasons why elected officials hate them, right? The gasoline price in particular is literally the most transparent and visible price in the economy. It's in two-foot-high letters as you drive, <laughs> no, numbers as you drive around. Um, and um, let me just say, if, um, if any of you ever decide to raise the gas tax, please let me know so I can move to your district. I'm going to run my campaign ads in the little monitors there at the gas pump. Um, <laughs> so my, my point here is, is not to disagree, um, you know, I, and I have some views on, on the carbon tax, but is simply to make the point that the reason why economists like it is the reason why it is so unpopular, right? Is, is candidates and, and elected officials, they tend to like things which are not obvious to the people paying them. Um, on your question, uh, old age entitlement reform, uh, spending on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid um, is uh, crowding out other government spending for other things. So if you believe that the government needs to have more resources for education, for parks, 
for physical infrastructure, for environmental protection, for uh, national security, for diplomacy, um, uh, Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid are gobbling up all of the resources and creating uh, much bigger pressure at the federal level and at the state, state level, level. Mm -hmm. right? The reason why it's so hard to resolve these problems, or one of many reasons why, but the, the arithmetic reason why is the Medicaid budget, Medi-Cal, is crowding out everything, and specifically Medi-Cal spending for long-term care um, for seniors. Right. Um, so it, it's crowding all those things out. It is um, causing uh, us to borrow way too much um, from the future. We're basically stealing income from the future, which I just think is immoral, um, and it's creating pressure for higher taxes. Um, so uh, these programs were built um, on a model um, from the from 19th century Germany, um, and I think it's time that we update that. And the 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 promise that was made and was made to today's re to today's retirees is we're going to cover a share of your income when you retire. Right. The promise that we need to make to uh, starting probably my age and going down to my students. Right, not affecting the people who are receiving it now or the people who are about to retire, but you got to change to a new promise. And the new promise is when you're old, you won't be poor, even if you get sick. So it is to transform these into a safety net protection. If you do that, you have realigned the promises with the resources that we're willing to pay. And it means you're not borrowing from the future. You're not crowding out these other essential things that government does, and you're not causing pressure to massively increase taxes to European levels. Yeah. And, and that's originally how it was started in terms of uh, the policy around it. And like any other policy, it continues to evolve to the point where more people are covered than was originally intended. So let's explore that a little bit more. Um, the hard part about that is making the trade-offs of what do you define as poor in need of the services versus not. I mean, so people try to use income levels. They try to use age levels. Your thoughts? I, I don't think that's actually the hard part oh, okay. because I think you can get a few reasonable people in the room and they'll, you know, they'll quibble about kind of where do you draw the line as to what defines poor. The hard part is the policy and politics of saying the middle 60%. Right. You can get very broad based support to say it's the, the line is Warren Buffett shouldn't be getting a Social Security benefit. Yeah. Right. There, there's often very broad support for um, for means testing or denying benefits yeah. at the very top. And there's often very broad support for having a very strong safety net for the bottom with you know, minor arguments about how we define the bottom. The trick here is, is that the way the arithmetic works, it's the 60 percent in the middle. It's those middle three income quintiles who are you know, tens of millions of people, and you can only make the arithmetic work for them with demographics driving it and rising per capita healthcare spending if you're willing to massively, massively increase and keep increasing taxes, not just to European levels, but even beyond those levels. Hmm. Um, and that's something that it seems to me we've been unwilling to do. Just on the demographics, it's not just the one-time surge of baby boomers moving through the retirement thing. It's also that we're living longer. Now, living longer is a good thing, right? I mean, it's great that we're living longer and we're going to continue living longer. Each successive age cohort has a longer expected lifespan. But what that means is, is that you're expecting to pay benefits for a longer and longer time. And so it gets more and more expensive for the government. Um, what's so distressing about what's going on right now is, and this typically happens in a presidential campaign, is everyone wants to go out and promise new stuff 
without the taxes to pay for it. Yep. And from my standpoint, it is irresponsible for candidates and politicians to make new promises when we don't know how we're going to get the resources to fill the promises that have already been made. Yep. You shouldn't layer new promises on top of existing unfunded promises. Christine, would you I, so like to- let me, I mean, there, there's a lot you and I will agree on. I think it, it is important to have a, a reality check that the big source of sort of the growing entitlement spending really is rising healthcare spending. And so the answer is not going to be to cut back on social security and those kind of, of programs, but to figure out how we can get high quality health care and not have the, the rapidly rising costs. I do also think we can talk a lot about, oh, we don't want to, you know, go to a disastrous European level of taxes. That doesn't mean we can't raise tax revenue, that we actually, um, there are a lot of things that we want as a country. Most people are wildly in favor of making sure that everyone in the country uh, has has adequate health care. And I couldn't agree with you more. We ought to pay for it, and we ought to figure out how we're going to pay for it. And likewise, there's a lot of good spending that we, we should be doing. And especially, I mean, where I, where I have the agreement with you is... You know, running big deficits are one thing if you're in a serious recession or if you're using the money to do things that are going to make us a more prosperous country in the future, whether it's education or infrastructure or even basic scientific research. It's a very different thing to just use those big deficits to form uh, or, or to, to fund a, a consumption boom. And so we absolutely need to be thinking about what kind of spending we want to do and how we want to pay for it. So that I would agree completely, but I really resist the idea that we do it on the back of people that uh, are suffering and need the help that the government can provide. Right. Okay, you right. said we had distinct approaches. May I respond? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. First thing is, I, I, I just think you're incorrect on the driving of the drivers of the spending growth. If you look at the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office's numbers for the next, say, 20 years, half of the spending growth is driven by growth in per capita healthcare spending adjusted for age, but the other half of the spending growth is driven by demographics. So there are two drivers of the increases in aggregate spending. One is per capita healthcare costs, and the other is we're older and we're living longer. And my belief is we need to address both of those drivers, not one. Okay. The other trick here is, is that we agree that we need to slow the growth of age-adjusted per capita healthcare spending, but the question is, what do you do with the resources that you have freed up or the increased resources that you're no longer committing? And what I'm saying is, let's, not, let's use that to solve our current high debt level problem and our projected future growth in debt level. Sadly, what usually happens in the policy process is they say, we figured out how to save some money on healthcare over here, so now we have a whole bunch of other people here who we want to give more health benefits to. Now, I feel bad for those people, but I feel even worse for the generations of future people who we're taking the resources from to fund the current beneficiaries. And talking about long-term growth, I understand there is a child born today who will live to be 150. So it will exacerbate those problems that you're talking about. So you also talked about the deficit. So could you explain a little bit more? Because I hear from one economist that said, well, deficits 
what should we worry about? It's like your household, right? You just borrow more money. And others say, that's really bad. So could you talk about okay, so the difference a, a, and why? A, a few, a few con- so first of all, there's the short-term versus long-term, right? Which is, and, and Christy was talking about the short-term. And there's absolutely a role for what's called counter-cyclical fiscal policy. The economy is weak, right? You pull on the fiscal policy lever by doing some combination of temporarily increasing government spending and or cutting taxes. The Obama folks did this in a big way um, right at the beginning, at the beginning of 2009 with the fiscal stimulus law. We did it in a smaller version about a year, year later. But what we're talking about here is the structural deficit and the structural debt, okay? 80% of GDP debt, which is twice as big as it's historically been. Now, most of the public debate focuses on the higher risk of a financial crisis, Right, which is we borrowed a lot. Oh my gosh, there might be a run on the dollar. There might be a collapse, sort of a Greece, Greek-like situation in the U.S. Right, and the reality is there is obviously an increased risk of that, but no one knows how big that risk is. No one knows how big the increment is. Um, and as Hank Paulson once said, uh, the U.S. is the cleanest shirt in the dirty shirt pile. Right. <laughs> Um, so the U.S. has borrowing advantages that other, other uh, countries don't do. But usually what happens is the debt doves will come in and say, because, Keith, you can't prove how big the risk of a crisis is, we don't have to worry about the debt. Uh-huh. And what that does is that ignores the other costs of high debt. It ignores the fact that we're now paying 2% of GDP for interest payments, not 1% of GDP, which means you don't have as much money for the national park system and highways and job training and the Defense Department and our diplomats and all of these other things that the government does. Um, and then the other is that it creates pressure to, to raise taxes. Um, finally, last point, sorry. Um, but when the government is borrowing so much, it means that when you need to borrow capital from the markets, you are competing with Uncle Sam for those funds. It's raising the interest rate that you have to pay to finance your private investment. And so that government crowd out over time slows yep. private investment it slows productivity growth, and it slows long-term wage growth. If you solve the debt problem, you're freeing up more money for other things that government does, and you're raising long-term wages. Those are very important and good things to do. I think that I'd add, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. I think especially, it, I mean, what is so unbelievably frustrating is back in 2010, when the unemployment rate was still 10%, everybody was concerned about the deficit and the debt. And here we are, uh, 10 years later, unemployment is low, and nobody's concerned about the debt and the deficit. And it just <laughs> is crazy. And uh, so I think that that's just... Uh, we agree on that. That, that is, that is uh, just really unfortunate. I want to raise also, a, I mean, as debt levels get higher and higher, right? So, you know, and, and the long-term projections, wherever you think they're coming from, are still wretched uh, when we look forward. So it's not just a, a near-term problem. Things are going to be getting worse. So a risk of you know, people losing confidence in the U.S. government debt is, is something that's going to be rising over time. But 
even if we don't get there, and there are all sorts of reasons why the U.S. has a lot more capacity to borrow than, than other people, I worry about it affecting our willingness to use the tools that we have. I, you know, I've, we've done some, some research on you know, what countries did better or worse after uh, various financial crises, and one of the things that you notice is countries that start a crisis with fairly low public debt loads do more to fight it. And, uh, and so one of the things I worry is if we just keep using up our, if you want, fiscal space, our ability to borrow, the next time we face something really bad, we're going to say, sorry, we can't do anything where we're, we don't have the space to do it. And I think that's a real risk. Strongly agree. Yep. And I was going to ask you along those lines, since uh, you head of monetary policies, have we run out of monetary tools at the Fed if a recession were to hit? And does that mean our interest rates will go to zero or negative like some of the other countries have done? So what, what's certainly true, right, the, I mean, with, with policy and, and all interest rates actually very low, um, we don't have as much room for conventional monetary policy. So currently our, you know, federal funds rate, which is the interest rate the Fed really targets, is at, you know, roughly one and a half percent. That's not, you don't have a lot of room to yeah. take that down. You can, some countries can take it a little bit negative. You can't take it a lot negative. So, we we haven't run out of monetary, you know, the ability the to use monetary policy. I think you'll see we did cut it, cut interest rates uh, over the last year, and I think that things were looking a little shaky, and they got better. So I think it does. It still is a tool. It still works. We don't have as much of that sort of conventional tool. Um, that we used to have, and most of the projections are we're not going to quickly go back to where normal interest rates are 4 or 5%. The Fed, actually, Ben Bernanke, the former Fed chair, just gave a speech at the American Economic Association about talking that, uh, don't worry, the Fed has other tools, and we do know they have various kinds of unconventional monetary policy, whether it's you know making promises of saying promise will keep interest rates low, or maybe intervening in the market and trying to push down uh, some longer-term interest rates. The trouble is those are unconventional tools. We don't really understand them. We think they work. We don't know. I, I'm pretty sure they don't work as well as just cutting interest rates. So we're in, we're, we're certainly in a world of diminished monetary tools, which just adds to you don't want to be in a world of diminished fiscal tools at the same time. Uh, it really does make us vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, we're closer to that to that zero level. Agree with everything Christie said. Um, there are other tools that um, uh, that the Fed has. Uh, Bernanke's speech, I think, is absolutely worth reading. Um, on the list of opportunities to make policy better, um, the idea of uh, you know new ways for the Fed to goose the economy even more um, is very low on my list. Um, and frankly, it's a frustration of mine that policymakers, in particular in Congress, spend so much of their time um, cr- criticizing the Fed for what they think the Fed should be doing when Congress's job is to fix fiscal policy, trade policy, tax policy, regulatory policy. Right. 
Guys, stick to your own knitting, fix, to, fix that, and then I'm confident that the Fed will have more room and will have a stronger economy where you'll have less concern about actually whether or not you need additional tools here. All right, good. <laughs> you have some people who really like that answer. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Talk about the trade deficit. What's the impact that the trade deficit has on our economy and our ability to um, have a strong economy moving forward? Actually, it's it's the the trade deficit is um, it's kind of silly that we've gotten obsessed with it because in but if you look at we we talked earlier about what's the overall state of the economy and the unemployment rate is low we're probably pretty close, if not um, at or even a little bit beyond full employment. So it's not as though the trade deficit is somehow holding us back. I think fundamentally, it's just a reflection of the fact that we're a low-saving country. We're running big budget deficits, and the rest of the world has a lot more saving, and so they're wanting to buy a bunch of our assets. That's affecting our exchange rate. So I think people have gotten obsessed about the, the trade deficit, and it's really not uh, what's driving sort of the rest of the economy. What we should be thinking about are, I think, what Keith described as the fundamentals. How do we get productivity up? How do we make sure that workers across the income distribution um, are seeing productivity change or seeing their wages go up? Uh, How do we make businesses want to invest uh, so that, again, that improves our productivity over time? And and figuring out, especially the, not only is the overall trade deficit not terribly important, the bilateral trade deficit, our trade deficit with a particular country, that's just a, a kind of a complete red herring. It takes us... You beat me to that point. Ah, well, well go ahead, pick up on it. Yeah. Pick up on it. Yeah, no, I just, I just agree 100% with everything Christy just said here. Um, I mean, one of the problems with the trade deficit as a measure is um, sometimes when good things happen that we should feel good about, the trade deficit will increase. Sometimes the trade deficit is increasing because bad things are happening. So saying the trade deficit is increasing doesn't tell me anything useful unless I know why. Um, so I've never actually found it to be a useful policy metric. I care about national savings, right? And, and the amount that we save of our national income is absolutely going to influence the trade deficit, but I'm going to look at national savings, not at the trade deficit. But uh, uh, Christy said it, which is the only thing less useful than the overall trade deficit is the idea of a bilateral trade deficit. Um, was it Samuelson who the, the line about, you know, I have a permanent bilateral trade deficit with my barber. Um, <laughs> he's never bought anything from me in my life, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> Okay, how do I follow up with that one? <laughs> um, so I have a question. So the China trade trade issues, you don't really worry about? No, 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 no. Okay. Didn't say that. All right. Said there's <laughs> so, a specific metric 
that, uh, that, that I wouldn't use to measure it here. Okay. Um, uh, and at least for me, uh, I'm looking at, I have a sort of a set of views on what the U.S. should be doing on trade policy, and then I have the U.S.-China relationship over here. Okay. And at least for me, um, the U.S.-China trade relationship I think of differently from how I think of how the U.S. trades with the EU or African countries or Latin America, because um, here the U.S.-China trade relationship is a subset of a broader set of issues um, between the U.S. and China. North Korea, Uyghur Muslims, uh, rising superpower, South China Sea, all of those things. And then, frankly, also China is different in terms of how they're behaving um, on the trade stage. So um, I sound like a, I am a radical free trader on U.S. EU, U.S. Latin America, on all of those trade issues. I sound a little different when I'm talking about U.S. China because it's part of a different, uh, different mindset and because they're, do, they're behaving diff- differently. Right. And I serve on a board of a company that's an international company. We do, we had a lot of business coming from China and uh, the, like the earlier panel referenced, a lot of our business now is moving to Vietnam and Cambodia. But I don't think people realize that China is investing in the infrastructures of those countries so that at some point in time, you're going to end up dealing with them. Christine, do you have uh, comments around the trade deal with China and your views? You know, I, I was trying to think of, of saying, you know, sort of, um, is the trade deal a good thing? Or, you know, what do you expect to happen? And the, the analogy that came to mind is, you know, when you've been beating yourself over the head for a while, when you stop, it feels really good. Uh, and I think part of what's been going on, we've just had so much uproar and so much counterproductive tit for tat on, um, on trade with China. So it's a great relief that maybe we're making some progress and that things are uh, simmering down. I, w- I'm going to wait and see on how much they've actually simmered down because I think if there's uh, one thing that, that Keith mentioned, right, we, we've gotten used to a lot of policy volatility and I'm not sure that we're not going to have a lot more volatility. There's still a lot to be worked out. Um, but it would be a great relief if we could uh, stop this very counterproductive uh, fight with China over trade. Great. Could I, could I make some suggestions? And I'm, I apologize, but I assign reading to my students, and I see a, a room of students here. So um, <laughs> uh, uh, on U.S.-China, uh, an article in Foreign Affairs maybe a year and a half ago, uh, Kurt Campbell and Eli Ratner, Um, on the changing relationship between the U.S. and China, and in particular, a critique of how the American foreign policy establishment had thought of China for 40 years. Absolutely essential reading. And then Hank Paulson's three speeches on the U.S.-China relationship um, at the Paulson Institute website are by far, those four things um, have really shaped my thinking on this, and I I just can't emphasize how important um, the Paulson speeches are. Great, great. So write that down. In fact, we have a question from a millennial in the room. Um, how can our needs, the millennials, be part of the economic conversation? We talked a little bit about this earlier. Again, the housing crisis that we have here, the cost of child care, um, Prop 13. How can we address that? And maybe it's, it's not just confined to California. All of the really coastal cities are suffering from the same, the same issue. Comments? I mean, no, I, I mean, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an important issue, and it, it goes somewhat back to to what what Keith was describing about our priorities as a country, right? So, I mean, 
I, for one, think it's incredibly valuable and wonderful that we have been making progress in uh, making sure that, that the elderly in this country have a decent standard of living. And it's incredibly important that we uh, make sure that everyone has access to health care. But the, the generational issue of are we investing in our young people, are we making it possible for them to uh, get to college without incurring huge amounts of debt, uh, are we uh, transforming our cities so that they have a place to live and can get to, to where the good jobs are, I think is a, is a huge issue. And that is, is I think it, it is really a place where I think we need to change our priorities. Uh, one that has been certainly a lot in the news is thinking about student debt because there is $1.5 trillion of student debt out there, and that is unquestionably affecting life for a lot of millennials. And figuring out what to do about that is, I think, you know, it's clearly a big question in the, the democratic policy debate. And, you know, kind of, you, you need to think about, um, you know, who you, who you want to help and, and how you want to help them. Because they're, especially the people that are most hurt are those that didn't finish college. So they took on debt, but then they don't have the higher wages. Um, it's often people who don't have a lot of debt, right? But, um, you know, because if the people that have a lot of debt tend to be, you know, the people that went to law school or medical school, well, they're going to be fine, right? They, they, you don't need to forgive their debt. They're going to most likely be able to earn and, and pay and still uh, have a good uh, lifestyle. But figuring out how you can help people that are struggling or defaulting on their student debt, that just, that ruins everything. That ruins your credit, your ability, you know, family formation, housing, and even it, it can spill over into what kind of jobs you're able to get. And right. I think that's a, an important policy uh, area to be thinking about. And do you know of anybody that's working on that now? I think there there are lots of proposals uh, and thinking about, you know, just sensibly about, you know, are there, we currently have income, you know, we, we some have some programs where you tie your payments to income, right? We could, uh, you know, there's a lot of policy discussion. We have forgiveness programs that it's almost impossible to qualify for, right? Yep. You could, you could change things, you know, without actually changing the law, just how it's, how it's implemented. Mm. You could think about uh, forgiving student debt for, you know, up to some level or uh, for certain, you know, certain income groups, but, but thinking about how to do it in a way that doesn't bust the budget, but targets the people that are, uh, it's, it's really messing up that, that generation's life. Yeah. yeah um, okay. Uh, different approach. Um, <clears throat> uh, look, I count I, on you for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I have a, look, I have a very simplistic view, which is if you borrow money, you're obliged to pay it back. Um, now I am, I am to some extent scarred by my experience because I had to deal with the, the financial crisis, right, where we had housing, finance, and housing. Um, and one of the things that I saw there about the policy debate around housing debt and around mortgages was that there was a natural attention for the press and for policymakers and politicians to be attracted to the genuinely sympathetic cases, yeah. right, to the person who ends up, you know, 
in way too much debt and face some tragic consequence and our heart goes out to them and we say, gosh, we would really want to help them. But it is impossible to design a policy that helps those people that does not also help a whole lot of other people while imposing costs on a third group of people. And I'm, I'm sorry, I just got to do a quick anecdote. New York Times ran one of these stories about some, you know, homeowner and, you know, like got cancer underwater on their mortgage. It was tragic. And in the New York Times, which is not exactly a, a left, a right-leaning uh, group of readers, the comments were filled with people saying, I've worked two jobs to pay off my mortgage. My family hasn't gone out to dinner and a movie in three months so we could uh, keep up with our monthly mortgage payments. We similarly face this. There are college students who are paying, uh, who are working at college, who are paying off their debt. Their families are making sacrifices. And we have to think not just about the cases where we would generally like to help people, but about the horizontal inequities we, we, we cause um, by transferring resources from people who are paying back their debt to people um, who, who are not. Look, um, the underlying problem with college debt isn't the borrowing to finance the high college costs. It's the high college costs, right? right? It's the expensive thing you're borrowing. Just like the housing crisis wasn't the mortgages. It was you were buying a house that was bigger than you could actually afford to pay. So what we need to understand is what is driving um, college costs to, to be so high and to keep rising, and why are people continuing to buy that and pay that and get themselves in debt? Right. I think you have to be careful, though. We have, I, I couldn't agree more that we need to think about college affordability going forward and how to to not have people get themselves into to high debt. Likewise, you don't want to get rid of debt completely. It's, it's, it is an important source of mobility to say, I want to invest in myself and I'm willing to pay it back over time. But we do have people that uh, currently have a lot of debt. A lot of there have been certainly cases of what comes pretty close to fraud with for-profit colleges. And so it's, it's not all, I think we can have a targeted program that deals with, may I agree with you on, uh, on some of the equity issues, but that doesn't mean it isn't a problem that there isn't uh, a solution that could help some of the people that uh, really deserve to be helped. So let's talk about how do we keep our economy strong? And two big components of that, of course, is labor participation and productivity. So you mentioned earlier we have a slowing productivity growth. How do we keep it strong? You know, if we had the answer to that, um, we would be... Uh, win the lottery. We'd be very, I mean, yeah. we would be able to solve basically all of the world's problems, right? When you look at, you know, the thing I think is probably the most frustrating thing to economists is to uh, look to a, a very poor country and you wish you had the answer to how do you get your labor productivity up. That That's the... Four trillion billion, whatever the biggest number you can think of, question. But we do have some things that we are pretty sure work. So, for example, um, and here I'm going to sound a little bit like Keith. I think <laughs> the government, in some in some ways, needs to get out of the way of the true inventors of the world, right? So that there is um, at least one person like the idea. Um, the, you know, so that, that but it, it's not just, you know, let's get rid of all regulations. It's, a, it's a creating policy stability, creating uh, institutions that, you know, put a good base for uh, private 
private investment, private entrepreneurship. So I'm 100% behind that. But there are things the government can do. There are things that the government is uniquely able to do. So for example, uh, we both come from universities. Investment in basic scientific research. No one company is going to do that. You can't, you know, get a patent on, you know, some really big scientific idea. And so that's a natural place for the government to to be solving a market failure. Uh, The investment in education, that again, there's a lot that can be, you know, individuals invest in their education, but we have as a society, there's uh, a reason for all of us to do that because it's good for uh, everyone. And uh, and then I think I'd put infrastructure on the list. That that is again that's something that is you you can have some private infrastructure, but by and large that is a social good, and it is best provided by the the government um, for everyone because everyone benefits from. And define infrastructure. That's so infrastructure is unbelievably broad, right? So we, we're all used to saying roads and bridges and trains and, but it's everything. It's our communications network. It's our power grid. It's, um, you know, it's, it's so much more than, um, just the, the roads that you see. Uh, and the, the, as I said, kind of the the infrastructure of um, research and development that is a place the government can be helpful. It can also subsidize the private sector. So to get kind of the best, best uh, the best of both worlds. Yeah. yeah, you need more capital, and you need to create the opportunity for more productivity growth. So um, uh, yes, on the infrastructure. Yes, on the public infrastructure. But for me, I'm thinking of that, I have a two-by-two grid in my head, right? Um, Public physical infrastructure, public human capital spending, private capital spending, and private human capital spending. So um, most of our telecom infrastructure is, in fact, privately owned. The server farms are all privately owned. Um, I I think we need to have policies which are allowing for and encouraging both. Housing, kind of a big issue in this area, right? Um, Most of that is privately built. Um, what we need to do is we need to have policies in place that allow more public infrastructure to be built in less than a decade. That's right. right? And which um, get out of the way, thank you, so that um, the private investors who want to create the private in, uh, in investment and the private capital can do so. Right? There's a solution to the housing problem. Allow people to build more housing. Um, allow people to put in more telecommunications infrastructure. Right? Allow that capital spending to happen. Um, get it so that whatever appeals process you have, it's a one-time appeals process with a limited time frame. You're not allowing someone to delay the process for months and quarters and years on end. Um, you make the decision, the policymakers make the value trade-off, and then you invest. It's absurd that it takes longer to build a mile of subway track in the U.S. than in France. Right? right. That's absolutely insane. Um, and then um, don't get in the way of people when they want to voluntarily transact. Um, if you want to employ me for six bucks an hour to wash your car and I want to work for that six dollars, right, we should be able to do that. Now, when you, when you preclude us from being able to do that, what you're doing is you're closing out 
the people who are the least employable in society. So people who have prison records, people for whom English is not a first language, yep. people who are teenagers who are first trying to get their job skills. You are, you are saying, no, we're not going to allow you to get on that first rung of the ladder of employment to learn those basic job skills, to learn how to show up at work and do a responsible job and learn how to, how to be a good employee. We're crowding them out. Um, similarly, licensing reform. Right. The ability, the idea of state policymakers basically saying um, you can't do this job, you can't do this job. And let's be blunt, those licensing, those licensing policies are usually designed by the incumbents who want to protect themselves from competition from others. So the key word for that productivity growth, it's capital and flexibility. And if you uh, if you have the policies to create the capital infrastructure and you allow the economy to be flexible and to adapt and adjust, you're going to get the productivity growth and you're going to get the income growth. So I can probably suspect what your view is on uh, California's law with respect to Uber and Lyft and contract employees. Uh, I thought so. I thought so. (laughs) Let me jump in here. So there are a a couple of things. So, you know, I teach introductory economics and I I start with my Berkeley students to try to tell them what's what's good about the market. And and I do a very, uh, I I try to do a very good job at at making the best case. But in your example of, well, two people want to make a voluntary transaction at, you know, whatever wage, you have to realize we don't work in a perfect economy, and we've certainly seen changes over time in the power of the employer versus the employee. And so I think you, you need to be careful uh, on that issue. And in particular, I've... Earlier in the session, you talked about how great it is that wages at the bottom of the income distribution have been rising, and I couldn't agree more, but a lot of the evidence says the big source of that is the fact that we've had increases in the minimum wage in a lot of states. Mm-hmm. So we haven't done anything to the, to the federal, but at the state level, and that really is having an effect on, uh, on the incomes of people that that work in minimum wage jobs. So I think there's a, an important role for those, for those programs. But there's always winners and losers in that. So, for example, when we raised the minimum wage to $15, to your point, students couldn't come in and be waiters or cashiers anymore, right? Right, and the, the Congressional Budget Office did some great numbers on different levels. I think they did 12 and $15. And their numbers show um, a whole lot of people getting higher wages if you go up to, say, a $15 minimum wage, Right. Lots of people, and then a much smaller number of people, one-eighth as many, one-tenth as many, who are now unemployable. So you take the people who would have been at $14 an hour and are now bumped up to $15 an hour, and each of them gets a $1 wage, but the person who can only command a 9 or $10 market premium, the employer is not going to give them a $6 bump. It's just not worth it. They're going to put in the automated, uh, may I take your order thing. Um, and so what you get is a lot of people getting a little benefit. You get the lowest skilled, lowest, uh, least productive people who are completely shafted because they're priced out of the market entirely. Um, Christy's absolutely right that um, there are bad employers. There are cases. In, you know, I'm not, ca- I'm not calling for the elimination of all labor protections by any means. What I'm, but, but I do think there's a counterpart to that here, which is the... Uh, labor market interfering policies that get put in place are not the ones 
designed by responsible ethical economists. They're the ones that get implemented as the result of a political and legislative process, right? So the licensing reforms that you have, sorry, the licensing policies that you have here, right, um, are claimed to be, at, you know, done to protect consumers or to protect against some horrible situation. In reality, you have to compare the downsides of not having some of those incremental labor protections with the downsides of having political power going through the government process to determine who the winners and losers are. And in my view, we have too much political power allocating those resources and hurting a lot of people who don't have a voice to participate in and who have lo- loved nothing more than to just drive an Uber and make some extra bucks. Right, right. Um, along that line, we had a question from the audience. The Bush and Trump administration's uh, Tax Reform Act, uh, what's been the real impact on California and the nation as a result of those uh, tax reform acts? And are there winners and losers as a result of that? Well, let's see. Let's 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 leave it with the. Let's start with the the Trump tax cut. So I think the what is true is it had a short run stimulus impact. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no question. If you cut people's taxes, they spend more, and that gives you a, a boost. And sometimes that's terrific. Like if you're in the middle of the Great Recession, uh, when you're close to full employment and you don't really need the boost, it's not a, a sensible policy. I think one of the things, be, because of sort of the nature of it, it has certainly, um, a lot of those short-run stimulus effects, I think, have petered out or were counteracted by the trade war or whatever, so we didn't really see it in a, a surge of GDP growth. And then, you know, what, what everyone always hopes for, the, the economic sort of rationale for tax reform or cutting taxes is to try to set off, you know, increased labor effort or improve productivity change or increase entrepreneurial effort. And, you know, unfortunately, most of the studies do not find that those effects are very large. Uh, in fact, it's v- it's very hard to identify them at all. At least at the you know the level of do we see reported income go up when you cut people's taxes? And so you know if you look at sort of where we are today, investment has been really anemic. That's where you would have hoped to see sort of this uh, tax cut to have done something good. I don't know, you know why that is, but it certainly does not suggest that it's been uh, a great success on doing what we really need to do, which is, is trying to get uh, our economy you know, thinking about the future, investing for the future. Um, yeah, so what you'll hear here is a fairly standard, you know, two different flavors of approaches on, on tax policy. Um, uh, my thinking about it is much more driven by the long-term effects of it than the short-term fiscal stimulus questions. That's just sort of how I prioritize it um, and how President Bush prioritized it. So we were looking at lowering marginal tax rates on income and on capital. Um, and uh, there's, there's a, you know, a long-standing, hotly debated question about um, how big are the incentive effects um, how much more capital investment do you get? What are the positive benefits? What are the efficiency benefits of lowering marginal tax rates? Um, uh, it is exceedingly difficult to resolve those questions after the fact um, in a macroeconomy where so many other things are changing at the same time. 
Yep. Right. Um, so some of my friends say, look, we cut taxes and the economy grew. Yes, but five other things were going. It's hard to link one to another. Um, and then it's also hard, I think, to make the converse case to say it didn't have that big effect. There are just too many confounding factors to the analysis. Um, but I believe that incentives matter. Um, I believe that incentives at the margin matter, that they affect behavior. Um, I also believe that um, uh, I care a lot about what the money would otherwise be used for. Um, uh, now for, in particular, for the Trump tax cuts, given where we are in terms of debt levels, I would have much rather that they had paired their tax, their tax relief with cuts in government spending, kind of made that point. Um, uh, but there's also the question of, um, in whose hands, um, is the money more likely to be better spent? Sort of the, the moral question here. Um, and sadly, I believe that if we leave more of this revenue in Washington, I believe it's not going to be spent on high productivity capital investment. It's going to be allocated based on political power. And I'd rather leave that money in the hands of the people who, who are earning it um, and let them make decisions that affect their lives and their families and their businesses. Yeah. Yeah. I do just want to say, just, just saying that it's hard to measure the effects of tax changes doesn't mean that we don't know anything. And in fact, Economists have all sorts of ways that they try to take into account all of these confounding factors. So, for example, look at individual level data where a lot of the confounding factors will be the same. And you can see people who are affected by a tax change, do they behave differently than people that weren't? And what those studies pretty consistently find is there are incentive effects of tax changes, and they're precisely estimated to be really quite small. And so I, that's certainly the... Um, so I, too, believe in incentives, and I just think we can go much too far to say, um, therefore, we know the tax cut will pay for itself. Well, it doesn't. It hasn't. It won't. Uh, and so I think that's a, a really important point. Um, can I uh, stipulate something here? Uh, tax cuts do not pay for themselves. Um, and none of the tax cuts that were enacted while I was involved in policymaking or since then have paid for themselves. Um, and I think that the people who claim that are wrong. So I agree with you on that. Um, uh, I believe that properly designed cuts in marginal rates on um, income and capital income and corporate income can have an incentive effect, which can partially offset themselves. Um, but uh, but the statements that are often made are Lincoln. just incorrect. Yep, yep. So since oh, can't is, we stop there? Yeah, we're, we're going to stop there. <laughs> Bring us, I'm going to change the question a little bit. So um, as economists, you believe in incentives, right? So what about all the stories of people who are moving out of the high tax states into the low tax or no tax states? Could you talk about that and that, that whole migration of uh, people out of mostly what are the coastal cities and, and states? Hi. Yeah, I keep going first. Keith, you go. <laughs> um, yeah, I think incentives matter. Um, uh, now, I think that, um, uh, again, the con confounding factor problem, um, I think it's too simplistic to look at um, just high tax rates in California as the only driver of people moving out of California. Um, I think there's housing. I think there are lots of other reasons. Um, but uh, what's it called? The TBU hypothesis, right? People vote with their feet. Um, if you don't like the policies where you're living, you move to someone where the policies um, are better. It is one factor in, in making a decision um, about your job. And uh, public policies are important. Um, in that regard, and I think that uh, California could uh, could 
massively improve its economic environment um, if we would basically just cut and paste some policies from other states where they've got higher growth and where where people are flowing into. Um, The neat thing about state-level policy, it's the laboratories of democracy concept, right? You got 49 other states to check out. And so what I want is I want the governor to say, who's doing it well? Who's getting the good results? Why don't we just copy and paste their policies in here? And sadly, I don't think there are any governors saying, let's take California's policies so we can replicate, you know, their tremendous economic outcomes. Um, I'd like to see it work in the opposite direction. Um, You know, I think there there are states that have high growth and a lot of them have more flexible labor markets, lower taxes, better fiscal picture and uh, just, you know, a more flexible economy. So I I want to actually say, I think I'll, I'll give you one example where I think a lot of states are looking at California. So California's implementation of the Affordable Care Act has been one of yep. the really big success stories. And I think part of it is because California wanted to make it work. And I, I think a lot of states, that's, that is a, a laboratory and other states are uh, emulating California. And I, I won't try to argue that different tax rates across states are not going to have some effect on, on people's behavior. Actually, what I want to actually bring in mind, one, to the degree that there's been evidence recently, it's about how much geographic mobility has been declining and that people are not moving as, you know, I was one of these kids that every promotion that my father got meant we moved to a different state. And that is, uh, that was perhaps one of the sources of dynamism in the U.S. economy in the early post-war period. And it really is changing. So um, I think it's a, it's a complicated issue with all sorts of incentives, all sorts of maybe our preferences and maybe, and, and certainly policies playing a role in, in maybe making it harder for people to move. Can I just add one point on that? Um, and uh, I, I'm not going to say this definitively. This falls in the category of something I want to understand better. But if you are a kid in a moderate income family living in a, you know, moderate to low income area. You know, you're a kid in New Mexico and you're saying, you know, there just aren't that many great jobs here. I want to move to California where there are much higher wage jobs, but the standard of living is so great. Uh, the, The cost of living is so, so great that you can't afford to move and you certainly can't afford housing near where the job is. By the way, this is not just for the, you know, engineer who graduates from University of New Mexico, but the kid who wants to go and wait tables in California, um, because that's all he's qualified to do, if he can't live anywhere near where the job is. So I am concerned that the policies are, in effect, creating a bit of a wall around the Bay Area that are making it hard for lower skilled, lower education, more moderate income people to move in which then means that they say, I want to move to where the jobs are. I want to move to where the wages are higher, but I can't because my family doesn't have resources. You know, they can't say, that's okay, we'll pay your first six months rent um, until you get established. And, and that's entirely driven by local policies here that are keeping those housing costs high and crowding people out of the job market. If you allow more flexibility, then you'll get people moving to where the jobs are. Great. So we have uh, time for only one more question. And I get to ask it since I'm the moderator. Uh, so you both teach at the universities. What do you want your students to walk away with after you, um, they leave your class? I, mean, I think the, the 
it really is what we have been discussing today, right? That one of the key lessons of introductory economics is there are trade-offs everywhere, right? So we can, it's so easy to say, I wish I could have this, I wish I could have this, I wish we could do this, and realizing that we have to make choices. And it is, I, I, hope, one, that they understand that, and then take from that thinking about, you know, not just letting things happen to us as a country, as a society, but make choices about what what we want to happen and what we want uh, the future to look like. And so I think if, if they can get that sense of we actually face difficult choices and we need to face up to those difficult choices, uh, I'd be very happy. Um, one of the things I learned from my students are mostly between 25 and 30 years old. And the initial shock was, oh, my gosh, they don't know anything about 9-11. Um, the, the secondary <laughs> shock was, oh, my gosh, they don't remember the first election of Barack Obama. So they're just it, just in terms of age, their their adult lifespan, they don't know that much history. They've never actually been adults in an environment where our democratic system at the national level has been functioning in a way to generate policies, which does not mean that everyone has to hold hands and get along and kiss and make up. It means that our system was designed sometimes to force people to compromise and sometimes to just force them to vote and make a choice. And that dysfunction means that we're not actually making choices and everyone is just stuck yelling at each other rather than you yell at each other for a while, you vote, some people work out a deal. Maybe they don't work out a deal and you vote anyway. Um, and they're, so they're not learning the, the patterns of how the democracy is supposed to work. Um, and so uh, in addition to the economics, I want them to understand that the system can work, but also that your role in it is not just uh, once every two years or once every four years on a Tuesday in November. It is a participatory democracy. And the participation is not just waving a sign and yelling at those other people. It's, in fact, going and finding someone you disagree with and saying, OK, I'll buy the beers. Let's sit down and let's argue about what's the right way to do housing policy. You've got to get more, more to do that and then hopefully push your elected officials to do more of it. That's great. Thank you. Here, here. Um, there's, a, there's actually a group in uh, Congress that's made up of 50 or 25 freshman Democrats and 25 freshman Republicans who are really focused on doing that compromise that you're actually talking about. And we don't really hear about them very often, but they exist, and they're starting to make those meet you in the bar, have a drink, and let's talk, which gives me hope for the future. Thank you again very much. We want to thank Dr. Christina Romer and Mr. Keith Hennessy for their wonderful insight into our economic address. And the Commonwealth Club is now adjourned. Thank you. That was very good.